Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. At the 2018 annual conference, members who'd published books over the last year gave a reading. The event took place on Friday, May 18th, 2018, at the Fabry Mansion in New York City. Introductory remarks were made by bio board member Linda Level. Welcome, everybody, to the first public event of BIO. This is our Friday night reading event in which all BIO members or people participating in the program are invited to read for three minutes from their book if their book came out since June 1st of 2017. And you can time them. I told them to be three minutes, so you time them and wave your arms if they go over. Thank you very much for coming. Behind this face live two men. Thomas A. Bogar, reading from Thomas Hamblin and the Bowery Theater, the New York reign of blood and thunder melodrama. Palgrave Macmillan, 2017. One was a talented Shakespearean actor, a savvy, ambitious theater manager who persevered against daunting odds. The other was an arrogant sensualist who handily captured the hearts of married women and starry-eyed ingenues despite an unceasing barrage of public outrage. One day he performed Hamlet to critical acclaim. The next he haunted the brothels of New York, selecting the teenage daughters of prostitutes to become favored protégés. Under his tutelage, some of them did become celebrated actresses. Three died in their early 20s under questionable circumstances. He was Thomas Sonus Hamblin, 1800 to 1853. Few figures in American theater were as polarizing. Everything he did was extolled or excoriated. To his admirers, and there were many, he was a noble Roman who commanded the stage, a hero of the city's burgeoning working class. To his detractors, and there were more, he was an utterly unprincipled libertine, a narcissist who brooked no opposition, a ruthless Machiavellian who destroyed the careers and lives of anyone who stood in his way. As an actor, Hamblin carried himself with supreme confidence, leading with his expansive chest and muscular upper arms. Well over six feet tall at a time when the average male stood five foot eight, he maintained a commanding demeanor. His stride was regal, as if always crossing an imaginary stage, even when a real one was unavailable. Said one reviewer, he could not ask, how do you do, nor even blow his nose without a flourish of trumpets. He was fine when a scene called for majesty or dignity, but somehow at sea when tenderness or love was required. Never a star of the first magnitude like Edwin Forrest or Junius Brutus Booth, Hamblin was more a dogged, workmanlike performer. As a manager, he was fiercely, inventively competitive before P.T. Barnum. He wooed and won the boys and gals of the Bowery Theater, Pitt, and Gallery, and his vision and instincts were keenly attuned to their expectations. His tenures at the helm of the Bowery showcased a kaleidoscope of sensational, gory, blood-and-thunder melodramas, leading it to become known as the Bowery Slaughterhouse. Hamblin was arguably more responsible for the popularity of spectacular melodrama in America, especially among the working class, than any other theatrical figure. Thank you. Soon enough, the procession of carriages began. Catherine Reef, reading from her Victoria, Portrait of a Queen, Clarion Books, 2017. The ladies' dresses were of every known color, noted the Times. Pastel blue and green, two popular hues, were intermingled with amber, crimson, purple, fawn, stone, and a considerable number of white robes. 
black suits for men had been banished in favor of lighter shades. People cheered when they spotted a famous face. The Duke of Wellington gave a slight nod to the hurrahs that greeted him. Applause rang out for Prince Albert, who wore the gold-trimmed red coat of a British field marshal. Every sympathy was awakened on behalf of Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Kent, the Times reported, but she appeared somewhat disconsolate and distressed. The Queen's mother had wanted a more prestigious place in the procession and made sure everyone saw that she was miffed. The public recognized Victoria's father's younger brother, the Duke of Sussex, who would give away the bride, and Lord Melbourne, the Prime Minister, who carried the sword of state. At last came the Queen, looking pale but lovely behind the lace veil that draped her face. She wore a wreath of orange blossoms and a diamond and sapphire brooch that was a gift from Albert. Inside the royal chapel, the bridesmaids in their simple dresses and white roses looked like village girls among all the gorgeous colors and jewels that surrounded them, commented one of the queen's ladies in waiting. The train of Victoria's gown was too short for 12 bridesmaids to carry easily. We were all huddled together and scrambled rather than walked along, kicking each other's heels and treading on each other's gowns, said one. The lady in waiting observed, the queen's look and manner were very pleasing, her eyes much swollen with tears, but great happiness in her face. Both Victoria and Albert trembled a little, as young brides and grooms often do. They exchanged their vows, and when they found a few minutes alone, they promised never to keep secrets from each other. There was a wedding breakfast at Buckingham Palace at two that afternoon. Four servants carried in the wedding cake, which measured nine feet around and weighed 300 pounds. Sculpted figures atop it represented Britannia, smiling down on Victoria and Albert, who were dressed in Grecian robes. The day's excitement left Victoria with a headache. She began her three-day honeymoon at Windsor, lying on a sofa, while Albert played soothing melodies on a piano. Ill or not, I never, never spent such an evening, Victoria confided in her journal. To be called tender names was bliss beyond belief, she wrote. Oh, this was the happiest day of my life. Thank you. Alan Pell Crawford, reading from How Not to Get Rich, The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain. Houghton Mifflin, Harcourt, 2017. In 1856, when he was not yet 20, Mark Twain happened on to William Herndon's exploration of the Valley of the Amazon, 1851 to 1852. Herndon had led an expedition over mountains and through jungles unknown except to the tribes that lived there. A magnificent adventure, Twain recalled, through the heart of an enchanted land where the alligator and the crocodile and the monkey seemed at, as much at home as if they were in the zoo. But what caught Twain's fancy was the flora, one particular specimen, and its effect on the Inca Indians. These Indians worked ceaselessly because they enjoyed a ready supply of the coca plant, known as the source of cocaine. They labored tirelessly without complaint, precisely as would be wished by the industrialists who soon made their appearance. It bothered Herndon to watch these men work as they did, but it didn't seem to bother them. Morale might not have been high, but corporate culture wasn't an issue. Twain was even more impressed than Herndon with the plant's miraculous powers, which revealed the secret of maintaining a dependable workforce. Of course, Twain did not understand coca's harmful properties. Not even American drug companies recognized its danger when they began to market it decades later. Coca was used to flavor Coca-Cola, hence the name. The blame can be cast widely, but no one so far has accused young Mark Twain of anything untoward. So Twain said, I was fired with a longing to ascend the Amazon and to open up a trade in coca with all the world. For months I dreamed that dream, conjured ways to get to Brazil and spring that splendid enterprise upon an unsuspecting planet. On April 15, 1857, Twain set out for New Orleans, arriving April 26, by which time he was so low on funds as to be suspected of vagrancy. 
In New Orleans, Twain inquired about ships leaving for Brazil and discovered that there weren't any and that there wouldn't be any during that century. <laughs> Twain needed to think about what this bad news meant. I reflected, he said. A policeman came by and asked me what I was doing. And I told him, he, said, he made me move on and said if he caught me reflecting in public again, he would run me in. <laughs> Albert Bigelow Payne says it never occurred to Twain that it would be difficult to get to the Amazon and still more difficult to ascend the river. It was his nature to see results with a dazzling largeness that sometimes blinded him to unpleasant realities. Twain himself admitted as much later in life, saying that beyond getting to New Orleans and from there to Brazil and making his fortune, this was all the thought that I had given to the subject. I never was great in matters of detail. Ray Anthony Shepard, reading from Now or Never, 54th Massachusetts Infantry's War to End Slavery, Calkins Creek, 2017. A somber stillness settled over the island as a group of weary black soldiers huddled on the beach. Then they rose, capped their rifles, fixed bayonets, and waited for their moment. And it came in a command that all expected, but no one wanted to hear. Forward, echoed through the regiment. The men bit their lips and moved towards Fort Wagner. It was about 7.45 with darkness coming on rapidly, but each soldier knew that rifle and cannon fire would soon light the evening sky. Stevens set pace for B Company as they moved toward Wagner. Gooding, with his rifle high and bayonet shaking, moved as ordered. This was the moment they wanted, to get at the throats of treason and slavery and prove that they were men and soldiers equal to other men and soldiers. But under the snapping red Confederate flag with its 13 stars, Hundreds of soldiers, some of them just boys, waited with ready rifles and eager fingers. The editor of the Savannah Morning News and designer of the Confederate flag told readers their flag would be held by the civilized world as the white man's flag. The riflemen set their sights on a slender white Union officer waving a sword and a black soldier running beside him with the stars and stripes. But they held their fire and let them lead hundreds of sprinting black soldiers and a sprinkling of white officers closer and closer. The gray-coated soldiers inside Wagner could not know the difficulties the blue-coated men below had faced for the chance to charge. Their right to be soldiers questioned their courage doubted, their pay docked. But on Saturday evening, July 18, 1863, the 54th Massachusetts Infantry charged into the mouths of cannons to erase the past and shape the future. Thank you. Caroline Frazier, reading from Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, Metropolitan Books, 2017. If Laura Ingalls Wilder's life was triumphant, and it was, it was a different kind of triumph than we are accustomed to recognizing. She wrote no laws, led no one into battle, waged no campaigns. If we listen to her, we can hear what she was telling us. Life in frontier times was a perpetual hard winter. There was joy, riding ponies, singing hymns, eating Christmas candy, but it was fleeting. There was heroism, but it was the heroism of daily perseverance, the unprized tenacity of unending labor. It was the heroism of chores, repetitive tasks defined by drudgery. 
cooking and eating the same fried potatoes day in and day out, washing dishes in dirty water, twisting hay with hands so cracked they bled, writing with a blunt pencil on a cheap tablet. Laura Ingalls Wilder was a real person, not only a fictional character, although she lives on in that guise. When you stand in the small town cemeteries where she and her people are buried, you know that they were real. In the silence on the rise in Desmet, on the hill in Mansfield, covered by grass and gray markers, there are real bodies buried in the ground, not images or icons or fantasies. Her voice speaks to us of those people and their feeling for the land. It speaks not about policy or politics, but about her parents, her sisters, her husband, and her love for them. It speaks of her delight in nature, those glorious moments on untouched open prairies watching the geese fly overhead. Our family was dismet, she said simply, of those days when they were alone on Silver Lake. She always remembered that place, that moment, quote, a wild, beautiful little body of water, a resting place for the water, wild water birds of all kinds, many varieties of ducks, wild geese, swans, and pelicans. Wilder's family was every family that came to the frontier and crossed it, looking for something better, something beyond, no matter the cost to themselves or others. But however emblematic her portrait, it was also achingly specific, down to the lilt of the songs they sang and their last glimpse of an intact prairie, the grasses waving and blowing in the wind, the violets blooming in the buffalo wallows, the setting sun sending streamers through the sky. In the end, being there was all she ever wanted. Bruce Kennett, reading from W.A. Dwiggins, A Life in Design, Letter Form, Archive Press, 2018. A very quick setup. Dwiggins was a creative force in many arenas. Type design, book design, calligraphy, illustration, advertising design, ornament, sculpture. He made furniture and flew kites. He wrote fiction, plays, essays, and satire, and was the first writer to use the term graphic design. And he's famous in the puppet world for his marionette theaters, set designs, and puppet engineering. In this excerpt, he's moving into a new studio space in Boston in his early 40s. The studio mates basked in the tranquility of their new location. The Fenway Studios building stood tall along the south side of Ipswich Street, facing a wide network of railroad tracks that led to nearby Back Bay Station. With no buildings to the north, nothing but open sky, the immense wall of windows flooded every studio with even lighting throughout the day. The Museum of Fine Arts and the parkland of the Back Bay Fens were just moments away. Some of Boston's most accomplished and interesting artists kept studios here, where they could work in solitude, eat meals, and spend the night if necessary. Inside these massive walls, the new occupants found a deep sense of peace and a stimulating and colorful assortment of neighbors. Corner Studio 201 also provided the welcoming charm of a fireplace. As they'd done at their previous studio, Dwiggins and Goss divided the space into smaller areas with their wicker furniture and dull black bookcases. First-time visitors generally entered with cries of astonishment. The solid black walls transformed the studio into a stage set with framed illustrations, murals, and bits of work in progress radiating flashes of color from the void. Dwiggins worked at a high drawing table, sometimes standing, sometimes sitting on a stool. On the side table at his elbow, he kept a phalanx of tools, reed pens, metal nibs, artist brushes, oddly shaped knives, jigs, clamps, and rulers. He invented many of these and might fabricate a tool to perform only a single specific task. Recently, he had grown ever more involved with stencil making. Small sheets of celluloid now littered the perimeter of his drawing board and the side table, pocked with triangular cutouts or arrays of tiny holes, smears of dried ink and paint spread across their surfaces. 
to apply the color through his stencils, Dwiggins bought shaving brushes, sawed off their bristles to obtain exactly the right length and stiffness, and then mixed inks and paints to an ideal viscosity so the color would pass through the stencils without bleeding. The seven years that Dwiggins spent at 201 marked a significant change in the nature of his work. In his earlier studios, he'd dashed off illustrations and lettering for advertising agencies and a few publishers and printings, printers, but had never found steady work in book design. Now he was able to realize the dream he'd held in mind for two decades, and by the end of his time here, he'd also achieved his other goal, to become a designer of printing types. Thank you. The writer and documentary filmmaker Lori Gwen Shapiro. The Stowaway, One Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica. Published by Simon & Schuster in 2018. As he took his first strokes through the murky, reeking Hudson River, Billy feared the whipping winds. He kept count, feeling a growing ease in the choppy water, even though he wasn't going as fast as he thought. Keep going, he told himself. It was less than a mile to the ship. Lori Gwen Shapiro, reading from The Stowaway, A Young Man's Extraordinary Adventures in Antarctica. Simon & Schuster, 2018. So long ago, on outdoor swims with the Polish Falcons, he had mastered the right way to breathe. Later, a streetwise immigrant's kid, he jumped off the East River Pier at roped-off swimming area called Central Lanes, where even as a nine-year-old, he faced a harsher current than here. Billy was a veteran of hundreds of river swims. As he told it later, the only thing on his mind was his one shot to get before Commander Byrd and appeal to his mercy. Bird likes stowaways. All the 17-year-old could do was aim for the flagship and hope for the best. As he approached the city of New York, there was enough light to spot a hauser hanging down to the brackish water. Despite numb fatigue, Billy found the strength to pull himself up and then keep his footing on the slippery deck that smelled of salt. Covered in river scum, hair hanging down his forehead like oily kelp, he found his way to the hole, clambering on hands and knees, inching crabwise over rough-hewn wooden boards, and picking his way past intriguing crates of explorer supplies to find the out-of-view spot he settled on during his mission nine days before. Billy removed his squelchy, wet graduation suit, rolled the jacket and pants out of view, and stripped his underwear. Secreted in the pitch black of the smaller of the two forecastles he selected when the ship was open to visitors, Billy retold himself there had to be a job on the ship for a determined kid like him with water-clogged ears. Did he think of his mother so fiercely protective of her only child, a woman who had never thought him capable of betraying her this way? There was no official rule book for stowaways. He had read about the hoopla planned for the send-off on the morning, the brass bands and relatives and big wigs invited on deck to say goodbye before the New York loosened her moorings and the city's official welcoming tugboat brought well-wishers back to shore. Rumor had it that Amelia Earhart, the new queen of the air, would loop-de-loop over the Hudson, the grand finale to send the ship on its way. Earhart was a great friend of Commander Byrd and unbeknownst to the public, the new mistress of his very married publisher. She had promoted the expedition as a personal favor. Finally, snatches of sleep until something creaked. A rat, scary shadows flickered across the walls. What happened next felt like a hallucination. Just a few feet away from him on the dark second deck, Billy could see a a kid around his age, equally shocked to have company. The puny boy whispered his name, Jack. Jack was a happy-go-lucky 16-year-old Jewish kid who had dropped out of school. Before this caper, Manhattan was the farthest he'd ever traveled from the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, where he'd been born. Jack told his unexpected competitor that he had arrived at the city of New York at 7 o'clock in the morning an hour before. Well, determined Billy, then he was here first, hours ago. This was his spot. Billy tried to discourage Jack tried to discourage Billy, insisting that it wouldn't pay for him to make this two-year trip without any of the thought he himself had put in. Why, Jack had even brought a suitcase stuffed with warm clothes for once they dared Antarctica. He'd come aboard with extra clean underwear and a $100 bill pinned inside a coat pocket. Billy was no dupe. Is that so, he shot back. If this was going to be such a rotten trip, why didn't Jack get off the boat? 
The boys argued for nearly an hour, cramped in their almost adjacent shelves, first in whispers and then louder and louder. But then, to their joint amazement, yet a noise, another voice piped up, keep quiet, they'll find all of us. <laughs> Could there really be three stowaways? <laughs> yes, the voice told them for over two days. It was a deeper voice, manlier, belonging to one Bob Lanier, a black youth of 20. Even knowing where to look, Billy and Jack could only see his feet. Kathy Curtis, A Generous Vision, The Creative Life of Elaine de Kooning, Oxford University Press, 2017. The artist Elaine de Kooning was known for her zest for adventure and her freewheeling spending, as well as her legendary and ever-present cigarette. Elaine eventually became an ardent, if idiosyncratic, health food devotee. Her entry in the Museum of Modern Art's Artist's Cookbook describes her as possibly the only person who brings wheat germ and brewer's yeast to Paris. She explains that she became a vitamin nut after reading that each cigarette you smoke devours the vitamin C and the juice of one orange. Not that there was any question of giving up smoking. The recipes she shared include desert soup, a cold concoction of buttermilk, tomato juice, and chives, Elaine's coleslaw, in which bacon grease augments the mayonnaise, and yogurt soup with the unlikely ingredient of cooked oatmeal. Her idea of cooking was to give you a dry salad, her friend Ernestine Lassau recalled. One summer in the 1970s, her nephew Charles Freed discovered that the eggs in her refrigerator were so old they had dried out. When he brought a package of rancid ground beef to her attention, she said, my mother always said, if in doubt, throw it out. And she blithely tossed it out the window to land on the Broadway sidewalk. Years later, when Charles and his wife visited Elaine, she made the couple a smoothie that had some odd, crunchy things, which turned out to be uncooked rice. Charles also remembers going on a grocery store run with her when she bought $250 worth of food, the equivalent of well over $1,000 today, including several jars of caviar. Such extravagance was typical. If you were scandalized by the cost of something, that made it even more attractive to Elaine, he said. Her accountant would come over and tell her that she had to stop spending so much, and she would say, I'll make more. So it comes as no surprise that despite cash deposits totaling $4,700 between March and September of 1969, her checking account had 18 overdrawn notices. Her nephew, Clay Freed, who received generous checks from Elaine for his birthday, bearing her scribbled directive, no necessities, remembered that she was constantly out of money, even though she tried to make ends meet by painting Texas oil millionaires and their mistresses and wives, or giving lectures that she didn't really want to do. Her outlook was always, something will happen. I'll figure something out. Karen Rothman, The Songs We Know Best, John Ashbery's Early Life, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, 2017. So John Ashbery tries to win a Fulbright for five years in a row. He doesn't get one. And this, he finally gets off the wait list and gets a Fulbright. Uh, the Fulbright Commission had sent John a train ticket to New York City, but his parents and grandmother insisted on driving him to the ship. For some time, they had all been anticipating the opening of the New York State Thruway and were eager to test it. As they sped toward the city, they discussed John's going away party at Morris Goldie's place that evening at 10. All week, John had been reminding his friends to come. His father, Chet, was afraid that no one would talk to him. John was worried that his mother would realize, quote, just how many couples were not married. That night, Helen Ashbery was so pleased and relieved to see John's college friends, familiar faces, that John had trouble introducing her to anyone else. Jane Freilicher, meeting John's parents for the first time, thought Chet was, quote, a really impressive person. 
Fairfield Porter engaged Chet in a long discussion on apples and cherries, a conversation that resulted in an invitation to visit the Ashbury Farm, which Fairfield hoped to do. Fairfield concluded that John's appearance and his nasal voice come from his mother. As a parent, Porter understood just how much John's parents would miss their son, for, quote, they are lonely now without even John's laundry every week. On the morning of September 21st, 1955, Helen, Chet, and Addie brought John to the ship, settling him into his cabin. Jane Freilicher arrived, then Frank O'Hara and Jimmy Schuyler crowded in. They opened a bottle of champagne and toasted John and his journey. Later in the day, John left his cabin to explore. He stood on the deck and looked out at the sea, a scene as vast and mysterious as his childhood view. He contemplated its depths, its current promise to bring, to, in bringing him to another shore and to a new way of seeing what he had just left behind. In three poems, many years later, he apologizes for staring endlessly at the same view. I'm sorry, in staring so long out over this elaborate view, one begins to forget that one is looking inside, taking in the familiar interior, which has always been there, reciting the only alphabet one knows. He had recognized the beginning of this idea first as a child, and it was one he would have to forget and relearn many more times before he could articulate it fully for himself. He needed the drama of a new shore in order to remember that, quote, it is the personal interior life that gives us something to think about. The rest is only drama. He was 28 years old and finally getting a chance to discover thoroughly all the things he already knew. These are excerpts from the introduction. William Taubman, reading from Gorbachev, His Life and Times, W.W. Norton and Company, 2017. Gorbachev is hard to understand, he said to me, referring to himself, as he often does, in the third person. I'd begun working on his biography in 2005, and a year later, he asked how it was going. Slowly, I apologized. That's all right, he said. Gorbachev is hard to understand. <laughs> he has a sense of humor, and he was correct. The world is deeply divided about Gorbachev. Many, especially in the West, regard him as the greatest statesman of the second half of the 20th century. In Russia, however, he is widely despised by those who blame him for the collapse of the Soviet Union. How did Gorbachev become Gorbachev? How did a peasant boy whose high-flown tribute to Stalin won a high school prize turn into the Soviet system's gravedigger? How did he become Communist Party boss despite all the checks and guarantees designed to protect the system against someone like him? As leaders go, especially Soviet leaders, Gorbachev was a remarkably decent man too decent, many Russians and some Westerners have said, too unwilling to use force when force was needed to save the new democratic Soviet Union he was creating. Gorbachev's wife, Raisa, was a woman of intellect and good taste, even though Nancy Reagan didn't think so. Unlike too many politicians, Gorbachev loved and cherished his wife, and rare for a Soviet boss, he was a committed and devoted father to his daughter, and grandfather to his two granddaughters. What then made him feel, after his wife's agonizing death from leukemia at the age of 67, that, as he put it, I am guilty. I am the one who did her in. Gorbachev was remarkably sure of himself, but when asked what he found most off-putting in another person, he answered, self-confidence. Did he feel threatened by other self-assured men, or did he see himself in others and not like what he saw? Alexander Yakovlev, Gorbachev's closest collaborator in the Soviet leadership, thought Gorbachev found himself hard to understand, that Gorbachev was, quote, afraid to look into himself, afraid to communicate candidly with himself, afraid to learn something that he did not know and did not want to know. According to Yakovlev, Gorbachev, quote, always needed response, praise, support, sympathy, and understanding, 
which served as fuel for his vanity and self-esteem, but also for his creative acts. If so, how did Gorbachev react when, within sight of the mountaintop, he had to watch so much of his grand design evaporate around him? Was he, in fact, a truly great leader, or was he a tragic hero, brought low in part by his own shortcomings and even more by the unyielding forces he faced? Anthony DeCurtis, reading from Lou Reed, A Life, Little Brown and Company, 2017. Um, this is a section from my book about Lou Reed. Uh, it's about a song called uh, Coney Island Baby, which is about Lou's relationship with um, a transgender hustler named Rachel, uh, with whom he lived openly for three or four years in the um, 70s. Over a spare, meditative, guitar-based drum arrangement, soulful backing vocals, and an impossibly slow tempo, Reed's vocal delivery in the song's verses is essentially a recitation, which lends it an extremely intimate feel, as if he were struggling to find the words for the memories he's recalling, giving voice to them in real time as they emerge in his mind. He thinks back to high school and talks about wanting to stand up straight and play football for the coach, the straightest dude he ever knew. He conjures a John Wayne world of stoic masculine virtue, strong, silent, undeniable. In Reed's case, the song seems to be simultaneously about a desire to please and outrage his father, impulses that warred within him his entire life. Against the desire to live up to the standards defined by the coach, Reed presents a haunted vision of a nighttime self alone and lonely in the midnight hour, a morally degraded figure who, far from striving to live up to clearly defined principles, has put his soul up for sale. The character's sleepless memories drift back not to afternoons on the high school football field, but to all the things that you've done, to having made every different scene, to never being able to be no human being all those references more lurid and harrowing for remaining entirely unspecified, the listener's imagination all too readily filling in the blanks. As if channeling Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, the singer declares that New York is something like a circus or a sewer, a moral cesspool in which it's all too understandable that some people have peculiar tastes. Reed ends the song dramatically with the sort of radio dedication he heard so often growing up. I'd like to send this one out to Lou and Rachel and all the kids and PS 192, he intones. Man, I swear I'd give the whole thing up for you. It's unclear what the singer would be willing to give up for his love or for the presumed groundedness, the realness, the normalcy of the kids at PS 192, his ambitions, his fame, his art, his success, all of it, that Reed would bring the deepest and most sentimental of his musical tastes to bear on the relationship with Rachel, going so far as to mention her by name in the title track of his album, suggests the seriousness of his feelings for her. Rachel, described in Rolling Stone as a tall, exotic person with cascading hair, arching eyebrows, and hands whose fragile elegance is enhanced by two glinting diamond rings, has put the heart back into Lou's rock and roll. It would take decades before American culture would begin to grapple with the notion that gay people, let alone transgender people, experience love in anything like the romanticized terms then reserved for heterosexuals. Yet there was Reed doing that on an album released in America's bicentennial year and managing simultaneously to express all his conflicted feelings about his own sexual identity and desires. It is one of his greatest achievements as a songwriter. As vulnerable as he seems in the song, however, Reed heard it as a statement of defiance. Saying I'm a Coney Island baby at the end of that song is like saying I haven't backed off an inch, he said. And don't you forget it. Thank you.
Joe Hagen, reading from Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner, and the Rolling Stone magazine, Knopf, 2017. Jan Wenner now stipulated in Annie Leibovitz's contract that in addition to her Rolling Stone work, she was on call to the Wenners as the family photographer, a service she was expected to perform free of charge. Jan Wenner asked her to photograph him nearly every day and the photos quickly piled high. Jan Wenner at his typewriter, cigarette dangling from his lip. Jan Wenner, stoned and noodling on his red Gretsch guitar in the wee hours. Jan Wenner, pretending to read Erica Jong's Fear of Flying in Barbados. Jan Wenner, thumbs hooked through his orange Rolling Stone suspenders, grinning like a robber baron. Jan Wenner, smoking a cigarette poolside in Bel Air. Jan Wenner, stoned and smiling, nose turned up in proud profile, gripping the lapels of a black leather jacket that Bruce Springsteen gave him for his 30th birthday. The presence of the Rolling Stone fame maker gave Wenner the status of salon host and star in his own right. It was like having the San Francisco version of Andy Warhol, said Leibowitz. I served that purpose for them. The Polaroid SX-70 instant camera first appeared in 1972, and Leibowitz used it both professionally and privately, generating piles of selfies, party shots, vanity portraits, art shots, comic vamping, all the faces modeled in saturated chemical colors as they burned the nights to oblivion. Leibowitz used a flash to make overexposed paparazzo close-ups, filling square frames with Truman Capote's full fattened jowls or the cool come-hither smile of Warren Beatty. On and on, Ken Kesey, Richard Pryor, Lily Tomlin, Carol King, Jimmy Buffett, Dick Avedon, there were Polaroids of Wenner's guests admiring themselves in Polaroids and Polaroids of the Wenner's arranging Polaroids across the dining room table. They scrawled in-jokes under their images, bump till you drop under a blurred Annie Leibovitz, 50% of the stock under Jane Wenner's face. Of all her subjects, it was Jane Wenner. Jane Wenner was the one that most obsessed Annie Leibovitz in that era. She snapped hundreds of images of her, daily, monthly, yearly. Jane, the sad-eyed lady in pigtails and knee socks, reading magazines and tapping out a line of cocaine. Jane, the waif, swallowed up in a rattan chair. Jane, the chic dolly in striped French sailor shirts from Petit Bateau in Paris. Jane, in a bikini, arms outstretched in homage to Jim Morrison, bird-like ribcage poking out. Jane, petulant and smoking, eyes half-lidded. Jane, in rented bungalow in Barbados, carving lines for Richard Pryor. Jane, pursing her lips in the passenger seat of Annie's Porsche as they zipped to Los Angeles. And finally, Jane, emerging from the bath, nude and smiling shyly as she dries her hair. Jane, topless, blue jeans unzipped. James Atlas, reading from The Shadow in the Garden, a biographer's tale, Pantheon, 2017. I was uh, 24 years old when uh, <clears throat> Roger Strauss, for some reason, gave me a contract for $3,000 to write the biography of Delmore Schwartz. And uh, it was a uh, challenge. No one had heard of Delmore at that time. Certainly no one had heard of me. Uh, but I had one stroke of, of luck, and that was that Dwight MacDonald was his literary, Delmore's literary executor. Uh, they had been very close friends. And Dwight, I don't have to tell this demographic, was the great social critic of his day. Uh, at the time, he was a very elderly man of 67, I think, when I first met him. But uh, Dwight changed my entire life uh, by becoming obsessively involved in my project. Dwight's hesitation about my project had vanished once I got it underway, and he had even agreed to edit my work in progress. The chapters I sent him came back marked up like freshman themes. His challenges, objurgations, rebukes, and occasional praise defaced every page. 
Phrase after phrase was judged pretentious, cliche, verbose. Oh, God, he expostulated, denouncing a failed rhetorical flourish. <laughs> you have a great vocabulary of vague and dull terms. <laughs> Remember, I'm 24. That's Dwight MacDonald. What, 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 why summarize what the letter will tell the reader in 25 seconds? He exploded over some lame paraphrase. You're like a museum guide who talks too much. When I glossed over a religious crisis in Delmore's life, he noted simply, weasel. <laughs> and when I skirted the re reason for Delmore's fistfight with Robert Lowell, he scribbled, can't you explain for once? If I said too little on that occasion, I generally said too much. Leave the reader alone, MacDonald protested. I was always reader nudging. Quoting a journal entry in which Delmore confided his anxieties, I summed up, no more succinct or thorough evaluation of Delmore's malady is to be found in all his work, to which MacDonald retorted, and no more vague recapitulation of the main aspects of Dee's malady that have been described a dozen times. You keep wandering back to the old boneyard like a dog that's forgotten just where he buried that bone. <laughs> he makes it easy for him. And when only a page later, I returned to the subject yet again, he exclaimed, my God, you're back sniffing around again for that lost bone? <laughs> what prompted this editorial zeal? Uh, he continued to write the occasional essay, but he was blocked, according to his wife, Gloria, and generally had a glass of cutty sark in his hand after four in the afternoon. Then there was his loyalty to the memory of his friend and his love of editing. He had a lot of time on his hands. But I think what drove him was mainly literary enthusiasm. He often complained that he was having trouble writing and spoke wistfully of the memoirs he couldn't seem to get started on. My manuscript gave him the opportunity to roll up his sleeves and go to work. I subsisted on crumbs of praise. Trust you realize that I, unlike the sundial, only record the cloudy hours, he wrote at the bottom of one heavily scored page. There was an occasional good or brilliant or masterful amended to the correct masterly, and once a terse but eloquent ah. <laughs> he got in the habit of annotating pages with stars a la Mimi Sheraton, if you remember her, the food critic for the New York Times. <laughs> but he doled them out even more sparingly than the famous food critic and was so scrupulous that he once crossed out very fine and replaced it with fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, almost done here. The manuscript had a battle-scarred look. There were singed holes where smoldering cigarette ash had been scattered over the page. <laughs> and, um, and one chapter, edited from the hospital bed where Dwight was recovering from an operation, arrived in the mail wrapped in gauze. <laughs> the pages smeared with blood. <laughs> Visible evidence of the surgery he was performing on my... <laughs> Sickly prose. <laughs> anyway, I still bear the scars. <laughs> that is a tough act to follow. <clears throat> Beverly Gray, reading from Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, How the Graduate Became the Touchstone of a Generation. Algonquin Books, 2017. There's this party. A young man descends a staircase in a nouveau riche Beverly Hills home. He's instantly accosted by a bevy of squealing suburbanites. Liquor is flowing, tongues are wagging. Everyone is keen to congratulate Benjamin Braddock on the honors he's racked up at an East Coast college. What's next for the prodigy? Out by the swimming pool, one no-bullshit businessman insists he's got the answer. Plastics. But there's also a woman with all-knowing dark eyes. She gives Ben the once-over, flicks her cigarette ash, and proposes a party of another sort. That's how this graduate comes to get a very different education in a film that plays off adulthood against youth, pragmatism against idealism, lust against love. The homecoming soiree is where it all begins, only to end when Benjamin turns wedding crasher and runs off with the bride which puts a real damper on the wedding reception. The whole world showed up at that party. The Graduate was intended as a small, sexy comedy 
based on an obscure novel by a first-time author, but when it hit theaters in late 1967, moviegoers instantly took notice. Young people clapped and cheered. Their elders flocked to see what their offspring found so provocative. Soon intellectuals, clerics, and politicians were weighing in, trying to use the graduate to understand those unruly post-World War II children who were coming of age in large numbers. And I was one of them, a baby boomer with a lot on my mind. When the graduate premiered, I was a college student at UCLA. Longing to broaden my horizons, I had cajoled my parents into letting me spend my junior year in Tokyo. But when I returned to the land of the smoggy palm, I re-entered the realm of my parents. Proud of my achievements, they hovered over me, intent on helping to shape my future. Did I really want to earn a PhD in English? Had I thought about law school? And shouldn't I focus on the possibility of getting married? No wonder the graduate struck a chord once I'd moved back into my pink childhood bedroom with a little sister too close for comfort. I paid rapt attention to the galvanizing movies coming to town, anything to get out of the house. The year 1967 turned out to be a high watermark for films that took a hard look at the nation of my birth. Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, with its exquisitely calibrated take on violence American style, seemed particularly timely. Nonetheless, I hardly saw myself as an heir to outlaws like Bonnie Parker and Clive Barrow. The graduate was another matter. That polite young high achiever, those loving but smothering parents, those comfortable but slightly bland surroundings, they formed an only slightly exaggerated version of my cozy West LA world. Yes, we even had a swimming pool. Hey, wasn't that me up there on the screen? You've been listening to readings from bio members at the 9th Annual Bio Conference, Friday, May 18th, 2018, at the Fabry Mansion in New York. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy your day. <laughs>